Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I am editor-in-chief of UkraineWorld.org and I am joined by my colleague Maxim Panchenko, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. Hello, Maxim. Hello. Thanks so much for being with me on this traditional monthly podcast. But before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Ukraine World. We are a small team based in Kyiv. We will appreciate your support. In this episode, we will take a look on the major events and trends in uh, early 2022. Of course, the, the the world is looking at Ukraine right now. We we all are observing the Russian military buildup and the threat of Russian aggression. But what are the key focuses of our discussion today, Maxim? Okay, so yes, as you said, we primarily will focus on the escalation, both as such and also uh, on the diplomatic efforts around it. We will particularly talk about France, Germany and the US because because each of them is a very active player in this in this field. And then we'll also talk about the Normandy format, what's going there and if anything is going is going there. And also we'll talk about what current escalation can say about Ukrainian society, how population perceives it, uh, it and how it is ready uh, for the you know for the escalation to happen. On the domestic front, we're going to talk about some initiatives on President Zelensky that again are related to the escalation and to the military sector. And of course, we are going to touch on some other issues, maybe including the persecution of uh, prosecution, persecution of uh, former President Poroshenko. Yeah, that's very interesting. But of course, uh, let's let's try to look at internal and external situation. So, what's happening with this military build-up? We see that every day there are news that Russians are amassing. Uh, more troops, maybe not increasing substantially the the troops, but uh, but creating the cap- capabilities for for real attack. At the same time, there is the discrepancy of the estimation of threat between, let's say, American experts, American media, and Ukrainian authorities. Yes, that's true, and one can guess that. Uh foreign media american media take the information from their sources in the state department in the administration of president biden so essentially i think we're talking about the reconnaissance about the intelligence differences between ukraine and the us because on the one hand um, it would be logical to imply that ukraine may be better aware because it is here in the field everything is happening near our borders but at the same time uh, the us uh, has not been known for some false information when it comes to intelligence uh at least when it comes to you know to 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 Ukraine and to to Russian related matters so yes it is indeed very interesting uh what uh, the ulterior motives of of the information that are being pres- that is being presented by Ukraine and by the US are maybe this is uh, a bigger political game maybe the threat is indeed as big as the US is saying but President Zelensky is uh, trying to save the economy, to calm the population down, you know, to keep the country running. And in that sense, that is a double-edged sword because, yes, it will keep the economy as long as there is no invasion. But maybe it would be better to be more sober about the invasion. Who knows? Yes, and uh, it it's clear that the uh, there is a common message between different governmental officials. We see this common message coming from the defense minister, from the secretary of national security and defense council, from Zelensky himself. The message is don't don't panic. So we know the threat. We know the threat is there, but it was there 
since 2014. So the, go, the, the war is going on since 2014. And the amassment of troops, the build-up of troops has begun in March, April uh, last year. So it lasts for already almost a year. We are aware of threat, but as uh, Minister Reznikov, the defense minister, is constantly saying, uh, uh, Russians are still not not building striking groups, striking mm-hmm. groups that are, can really attack. And therefore, Ukraine is watching, observing, but it's not like Russians will attack tomorrow or something like that. And it seems to me that this discrepancy of interpretations, it was a little bit like overestimated by the international press and maybe by 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 some of the leaks that we can the discrepancy is not that much it's not like americans are saying look the threat is imminent and uh, and uh, you are you you should be prepared and ukrainians are saying come down everything is fine nothing 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 threatening us ukrainians are saying that the threat is there but it's it's not like it will be tomorrow. I think that's the key difference. Yes, and again, elaborating on what you said, that the threat is not new for Ukraine, there have been some real turning points in the recent years. For instance, uh, Russia has brought nuclear weapons to Crimea. How about that escalation? And fortunately, there have been no invasion following that. Also, when it comes to the relatively new front of the threat, uh, from Belarus, from the northern border. Uh, it's not like uh, military training is going to uh, to take place there for the first time uh, this month. It has happened before, and as far as I remember, uh, the most recent one was in summer, and before that, of course. So, yes, I basically want to agree with you that, that yes, indeed, this is serious, but it is not something that we have not been acquainted with so far. And let's be serious, Ukrainian society is not panicking at all, so we don't see any warlike mood in in Kiev or maybe some other cities. It's not like uh, you, you you can see you, you you can't see armored vehicles on 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 the streets of Kiev. You can't you cannot see tanks. You cannot see you know uh, some re- uh, really visible military preparation. And uh, in this in this sense, it is interesting because the foreign journalists who are coming here, they want to see the signs of the visible war. Even if they come to the front line in the eastern U- in mm-hmm. eastern Ukraine, they really want to see signs of the visible war. But there are people in the trenches. The people are in the trenches, but it's not like th- this is a hot war. You have destroyed cities or whatever, right? Yes, but at the same time, I think it is important to make a difference here between panicking, which uh, indeed is not uh, that much uh, of a case, and uh, getting prepared. Well, first of all, uh, we saw a de- the devaluation of Ukraine's currency by roughly a tenth, maybe an eleventh, uh, in in the recent months. So yes, there may be some caution. There may be some, you know, not panicking, but some, you know, very accurate um, estimates about what's going to happen. But at the same time, it's very good to see that Ukrainians. Um, they are trying to be proactive. They are trying, you know, to enlist in the territorial, on, in, you know, in the local defense forces, which is, you know, a, a very big phenomenon these days. People are, str- are striving to defend their homes. They're not, uh, they do not want to leave their homes and their cities, which, by the, by the way, is another trend. Nobody is really leaving, uh, you know, their cities, which is a positive thing. Think nobody, think nobody is panicking. And but at the same time, everybody is. Uh, it, it almost can be felt that everybody is thinking how can i you know contribute how can i uh, you know 
get a weapon if if the need be and you know to to go and fight the enemy if if if, if he comes here yeah so we will talk a little bit later about the uh, capacity of ukrainians or willingness to defend their mm-hmm. country but first some other sociological figures Uh, uh, Razumkov Center asked Ukrainians, do, do you believe in the imminent Russian invasion? So it's like 50-50. Actually, it's 44%, uh, 45% actually who are saying yes, the threat is real, and 43.7% saying that no, uh, I don't believe in the invasion in any time soon. And it's interesting that the closer you go to the real the problematic areas, for example, closer you, you go to the front line, uh, the bigger number of, of people who don't believe, who don't believe that Russians will invade. Maybe that's naivety, maybe that's wisdom. We don't know. Actually. They have some mental immunity, I think. They, you know, have been living in these circumstances for eight years, so maybe they are not. So if you take Eastern Ukraine, 55% don't believe that the, the, the threat will be like tomorrow and only 28% think that the, the threat is real. And in the South, uh, uh, 36% believe in the threat and 45% don't believe that the threat is imminent. So uh, these are the figures. Um, we will come back a, a little bit later to this um, the readiness of Ukrainians to fight and to defend their country with arms. But first let me say that disregardless uh, of the fact that cities like Kiev are very calm right now and you don't feel this panic, you don't feel it in the moods of people, etc., Ukraine is preparing to defend itself. There are military exercises, interestingly enough, in the Chernobyl region, in the uh, the ghost town of Pripyat, so where you have the town, the famous town, which was evacuated in 86 after Chernobyl nuclear disaster. So there is a town, there are buildings, but nobody is living, really living there. And there are military drills, you know, to kind of uh, imitate this possible fight in the urban conditions, right? And... Uh, Uh, territorial defense, indeed, people are inscribing, and uh, there is a law which entered into force from, I think, the first of January. Uh, so it uh, like it adds up to the existing military facilities, exi- existing military capacities to the Ukrainian army and to the war veterans, right? Yes, that's true. And again, this brings me to the to the thing that I said about uh, Ukrainians, Ukraine and Ukrainians being proactive. Uh, and yes, as you said about these military uh, drills, these war games in a way, uh, it's really important because they are taking place around our borders these days uh, all the time. Like in Belarus, as I already mentioned, and uh, along Ukraine-Russia border. And the latest information says that uh, I think six or seven warships, Russian warships, are about to go through the Turkish Straits in order to enter the Black Sea and to participate in some, you know, other war games. So yes, apparently uh, Ukraine is surrounded by this very, very ready armed forces of its uh, neighbors. So yes, Ukraine needs to do pretty much the same in order to, you know, uh, again to be. Uh, to align with the highest standards and the highest readability to uh, to respond to that. So, indeed, uh, so Russians are very strong, of course. There's a very strong army and 140,000 of troops, at least on Ukrainian border. Uh, and technologically, in the airspace, it's much more powerful, it seems, that Ukraine doesn't really have... A, a very strong air defense system, right? And uh, doesn't he really have a, a strong fleet, right? But in terms of figures, 
we can say that half of the million of Ukrainians are enlisted in army, national guard, and some other law enforcement, uh, some law enforcement services. Mm-hmm. Services, five hundred thousand people. Well, much more than one hundred and forty thousands of Russians. Plus, there is one hundred thousand of territorial defense potentially. Plus, there is almost half a million people of veterans of Russia-Ukraine war, people who are trained to do to, to fight. And plus, if you look at the public opinion polls, 50% of Ukrainians, this is the data of Kyiv International uh, Institute of Sociology, 50% of the uh, Ukrainians are ready, are saying that they're ready to resist a Russian invasion, including 33%, that means one-third of the population, that means 15 million people at least, who are ready to resist with arms. Of course, these are just words and public opinion polls, but it still shows the readiness. So uh, it's not like Ukraine will give up in two days. Really, the mood is is there to resist. Yes. And uh, I, I think it is very naive and very wrong to compare Ukraine to Afghanistan and to, to, to expect some very quick Taliban or something, Russian Taliban <laughs> progress in, in Ukraine. Yes, indeed. But at the same time, I have like several comments to make on that. First of all, there is a limit indeed to which Russia can build up its troops uh, on Ukraine's borders. And uh, it has pretty much come up to this limit right now because there are reports that in order to amass that many troops in, uh, you know, in the area they are now along Ukraine's border, uh, Russia needed to relocate them from its eastern borders that have now uh, remained uh, almost undefended. And it's not like a threat to Russia from China is now imminent or something. Or Japan. Yes, <laughs> or <but> America. <laughs> yes, but uh, it, you know, it tells... I don't think that Russia would want to, you know, really to tip those scales, you know, too much. So I think we are now seeing, uh, like, almost, at least the most uh, people that are going to be here, like 140,000, as you said. At the same time, my next comment is that... Um, we should not maybe be thinking that much about the number of troops because our uh, standoff with Russia is in the first place asymmetrical. We need to think about equipment. Maybe, you know, less people would be uh, able to do more and to inflict more damage on Ukraine, uh, provided they uh, were waging, they were having a, a you know a better equipment, uh, more equipment, better tanks, better intelligence uh, capabilities, uh, better jamming facilities uh, for Ukrainian of, uh, officers not to have any communication between themselves in the field. So we need to uh, not only to be talking about those numbers, but also about the quality rather than the quantity, and uh, that is something that is uh, very important. And also the third uh, and last remark. I would like to do in this uh, respect is that um, there are again reports, estimates, uh, predominantly Western and Ukrainian, that um, Russia will not be able to, uh, ho- to to take hold of the entire territory of Ukraine because those forces that are now amassed will not suffice to, uh, you know, to take the entire territory of Ukraine and to further keep it under control. Because, of course, Ukraine would not be uh, come under occupation. It would fight back. So Indeed. So we have a, a special, uh, several issues, actually, on our Ukra- Explaining Ukraine podcast. You can listen to them. For example, we discussed recently with uh, uh, one of uh, one military expert uh, the issue of, uh, of military options. But another issue is, of course, uh, 
do Russians expect a friendly citizens here, a friendly population? So there are so many rumors that Russians can install the puppet government. There was this uh, information spread by uh, United Kingdom's intelligence service that Russians have a plan of installing Mr. Muraev as a prime minister and uh, assisted by uh, politicians of the Yanukovych era, such, such as uh, Azarov or Arbuzov or some others. And it was met with skepticism in Ukraine because uh, Mr. Muraev is a person with 5% of the rating, mm-hmm. uh, 5 maybe 7% of the rating. Or people like Azarov, Arbuzov or others are not really present in Ukrainian politics. They emigrated to Russia after Euromaidan. Uh, so the problem of Russians is that they don't have a domestic uh, political force to rely upon. And that's the drama of, the, of Russians. If you look since 91, then Orange Revolution, then uh, Euromaidan, you see the decreasing influence of Russians on the Ukrainian internal politics. And that's Russians' drama, I think. Right now you have Two politicians, Muraev and Boyko, who together will probably have 15% of the vote. But they're not together. They're different political forces. So no chance to compete for presidential elections and not very big chances to win a significant number of seats in the parliament. And that means that Russians are aware that they, are, they, they don't have really allies inside Ukraine. So how do you react on this? How do you... How do you basically consolidate your power, even if you make a, a huge defeat for Ukrainians militarily, you will face, Russians will face with resistance, with partisan war, they will need to have, well, they will face lots of losses, human losses of their soldiers. But then uh, what they do with this huge country, you know, of 40, 45 million people, which is largely uh, not very friendly to Russians. That's the problem for our for, for Moscow for Kremlin. Yes, and it also uh, you know confirms this uh, discussion about whether Russia is going to uh, refer to an all-out war or to you know to some hostilities, some warfare in the east. As I personally see it, Russia now does not even need the entirety of Ukraine. It needs to make a statement to Ukraine and more importantly to the West. And that statement could be some limited uh, hostilities in the East. For instance, Russia could try and uh, indeed take uh, some, you know, another big city like Kharkiv in the East. Yes, given the geographical proximity, that would be possible because that's, a you know, a lo- would be a relatively local thing. But uh, an all-out war, I don't think that, uh, you know, the the price and the risks would be too high for Russia and they would not pay off, basically. Kharkiv is very important. Last weekend, there was a huge rally, uh, rally in Kharkiv in support of Ukrainian sovereignty independence. It was very beautiful. Many people on Sumska Street, the central street of Kharkiv. Kharkiv is just 40 kilometers from Russian border. Kharkiv is one of the biggest Ukrainian cities. Kharkiv was... Uh, the capital or rather the center uh, of Ukrainian socialist uh, Soviet republics in the 20s and a little bit of 30s. So it's a very important city. And it's still, uh, well, it's it's an important city of also Ukrainian culture, but mostly Russian speaking. It's very, very important to understand. And there was a big rally in support of, of Ukraine. So 
one of the misinterpretations that we see in the world is still perception of, is that Ukraine is divided between Ukrainian speakers and Russian speakers. This is no longer true, well, because Ukrainians and Russian speakers get along very easily, and there are lots of Russian speakers who support Ukrainian independence, who support Ukrainians' fight against Russian aggression. That's very interesting. If you look at public opinion polls, you can see one of the recent polls shows that over 60% of Ukrainians think that uh, Ukraine should further promote Ukrainian language. And it, it's interesting that in the southern and eastern regions, mostly Russophonic, Russian-speaking, there is also a majority I think 50% against 30%, something like that. You can see the exact figures on our Twitter, uh, Ukraine world, in which we share lots of these public opinion polls and, and interesting figures that help you to understand better Ukraine. So you see lots of Ukrainians, even Russian-speaking Ukrainians, who are for Ukrainian independence and for Ukrainian sovereignty. Yes, indeed. And that is um, a very... Um, the, the thing that you said about the rally in Kharkiv is a very timely message to the Russians and to the world, to the Russians that, hey, guys, we're not expecting you here and you're not welcome here, to the world. Uh, it uh, seems like, well, if there had to be an invasion and Russia would have occupied Kharkiv, for instance, they would said uh, about Kharkiv pretty much the same they're talking, that they're saying about Donbass, that they are Russian-speaking, they want it to Russia. And the thing that Kharkiv-based uh, people are now trying to be the first one to tell the world that no matter what happens, we already now are ta- telling you that we want to be Ukrainians and we are Ukrainians. Uh, you, The world will understand that and, you know, will... Uh, not uh, buy this rhetoric of Russia if it happens to come later. So that's very important that th- that these things uh, happen really now. Yeah, it's very interesting and, and, and very illuminating because uh, Ukrainian identity is not linear. You cannot really reduce it to language differences, to ethnic differences. It's much more related to political difference, to the way how people uh, perceive their lives in terms of values. And what Ukrainians reproach to Russians is mostly about values. They don't want to see in autocracy. They don't want to live in autocracy. They don't want to live under Putin. They want a republic, a, a liberal state, a, a state of freedoms, a democracy. Uh, so let's continue these things. And um, maybe one of the one of these scenarios is not a full-scale invasion, but rather kind of a blitzkrieg. And I think we should prepare for that, because Putin's strategy we see it in we we, we saw it in Georgia in 2008, we saw it in Ukraine in 2015. It's kind of a, this strategy of coercion to peace, have a brilliant, very quick military operation, produce important losses on your opponent, and then sit on the round table, whatever, whatever else, and dictate essentially dictate an, an agreement, right? So I'm afraid this is what's happening ra- now. We can be prepared for very long-term negotiations between Russia and the West about new security architecture, etc. But we should also be prepared that something happens and then Putin says, okay, you have one day to agree upon what we say, maybe to kind of uh, change it, modify it a little bit. And that can be a danger. Yes, but again, we need to understand and to, to keep in mind the, mo- the primary motivations of the parties and, uh, in this case, uh, of Russia. 
uh, why would it need and why would it be willing to pay the price for for this, uh, you know, uh, blitzkrieg in Ukraine? Uh, sanctions will follow, and uh, then the Kremlin will think, well, well, did we achieve something we wanted to achieve or did we not? Because yes, there can be a blitzkrieg. Uh, Again, something locally, but will it deprive Ukrainian government as long as it uh, keeps standing from the desire to go uh, you know, westbound to become a NATO member state as a security uh, guarantee? No, I would I would not think so. And for Ukrainian government not to be not not to keep standing, there would need to be an all-out invasion, which we dwelt upon uh, before. Let's talk about these diplomatic efforts. We see lots of Ukrainians now at the epicenter of the world diplomacy. Some days, for example, I think two days ago, we had four foreign ministers at the same time of uh, EU member states. It's very important that many of them are going to the front line. For the first time, for example, we see we have seen uh, uh, Mr. Borrell, the chief of EU diplomacy, going to the front line in, in early January. And it was the first time when the chief of EU diplomacy went to the front line. Miss Mogherini, who was a predecessor of Borrell, never went there despite mm-hmm. the war. And it was also a very you know, sad sign for Ukraine. But we see that Borrell is different and it's very good. And then the foreign ministers are not afraid of going to the front line. So Ukrainian foreign ministry is, is doing an, a, a massive job, very good job, I think, in, in these terms. And we also see the a visit of Mr. Emmanuel Macron, uh, French president, first to Moscow and negotiations with Mr. Putin and then to Kiev negotiations with Zelensky. So what is your estimation of these uh, talks? Well, first of all, uh, indeed, uh, coming back to the foreign minister's visits, uh, indeed, th- there is even the no- this notion that uh, Minister Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister, has coined uh, the, this network diplomacy. And basically the fact that every day there are foreign uh, foreign guests, foreign ministers from another from from other uh, European and not only countries, uh, it uh, adds up to to the security essentially, uh, not only to the um, to the image of support of Ukraine, but also to the security as it is, because hardly Russia would uh, attack Ukraine while there is such a, uh, an intense rotation of uh, you know of such high level guests in Ukraine. So that's uh, you know again a very good strategy. It may be a tactical rather than strategic, but it is working for now, and it's it's ha- helping us to you know to go through this. Um, this uh, very hard period. When it comes to uh, Mr. Macron, there is uh, well, first of all, of course, uh, the the fact that he is trying to find new ways is it might be a good thing because that is something uh, like thinking out of the box in the situation. He tries, you know, to go to some you know higher level. How higher level notions, not only speaking about the Minsk agreements or the Normandy format, but he is also trying, you know, to figure out like how can we talk about this more conceptually. So that can be a potentially fruitful uh, approach. But we also need to um, be aware of the extent to which. Um, Macron's interests and France's interests, how much they really converge with Ukraine's interests. Maybe Macron wants peace in Europe more than he wants peace in... uh, Well, 
he wants peace in Ukraine, but maybe he wants peace in Europe more than this peace being on Ukraine's terms. And uh, that is where Ukraine's diplomacy needs to, you know, to be active in order not to uh, admit anything to the table that would be damageable to Ukrainian uh, interests. That's what I'm saying. Yes, there are certain suspicion about that. And I think there are two interpretations of the events. The, the first is that Macron is trying to play his own game and show France's capacity to talk with, uh, with the dictator. Uh, Sarkozy, for example, tried this approach in 2008 and said that he stopped the war actually in Georgia. But what happened is basically that he legitimized Russian aggression in Georgia and uh, in 2008 and showed that EU will, Europe will not really respond. And that was one of the mistakes of French diplomacy at the time. The aggressor was appeased. Right now, I don't think that Macron is that naive about Putin, especially given the fact that he is facing the same problems, actually, as Ukraine faced with Crimea. Macron, we can say that he's facing uh, the same problems in Mali right now because there are Russian mercenaries, private armies, the so-called Wagner armies, who are uh, pushing the French and the Europeans out of Mali and uh, and. Putin bluntly denied any uh, relation to the Mali situation uh, during his press conference with Macron. Mm -hmm. uh, same with the same rhetoric as Russians were saying about Crimea. We are not there. It is not us. It's somebody else. Ask them. And this is one of the one of the tactics that Russians has tested in Ukraine, and now they are testing in other parts of the world. And that's that's very important. Another important thing is, of course, I think that Macron uh, tries to be maybe a mediator between Ukrainians and Russians. And it was clear during his press conference in Kiev that, the, that there is this discrepancy with Ukrainians. And he was focusing, he was trying to change the discourse. He was focusing not so much on Russian military buildup than on the so-called Minsk agreements the settling the issue of Donbass war, etc. And of course, this worries Ukrainians because Ukrainians are okay with Minsk agreements as long as Russians implement the security side of it. I mean, mm -hmm. Stop shooting, uh, admitting OSCE monitors all over the, uh, the occupied territories, including to the border of Ukraine and, and Russia. And control over the border by Ukraine. And uh, uh, entering the excess of humanitarian organizations, lots of mm -hmm. lots of issues, and Russians are saying no. You first adopt the political provisions, and political provisions are very bad for Ukraine because it was one of this coercion to peace approach in 2015 that Ukraine needs to give a special status, actually accept a Trojan horse in its territory. The enclave, which is already now populated mostly maybe by Russian citizens, fully controlled by Russians, uh, take it back into Ukrainian territory and give it huge autonomy in terms of armed forces, police, judiciary, etc. So you, you have a real part of Russia in your territory, which has huge influence on, on your politics. And uh, the Poles are saying that Ukrainians are not going to accept it. So it's not like you make an agreement in Paris and Moscow or whatever and Ukraine will swallow it. I really doubt that Ukrainian citizens will uh, will take it. And we have this 
uh, in public opinion polls. But if the Minsk agreements means that look, let's 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 do like already Poroshenko and then Zelensky line was saying first security arrangements, then we have sustainable peace, then we have you know solution of the question of passports because this Russian passportization is already a fait accompli. It it's not re- reflecting the reality uh, of 2014-15. Now the reality is different. The Minsk agreements are saying that at certain point Ukraine is holding local elections there. But how you're making local elections with Russian citizens? It's absurd, right? It's not possible. Uh, and uh, so there are many, really many questions. And the question is the true question is if France and Germany will push Ukraine to implement Minsk agreements in the way how Russians understand it, or they will enter another round of endless process. And the problem is that this process will be endless because the issues, the problems are accumulating. They're not getting getting less, they're getting more of these problems. Yes, and it is uh, vital to understand how much uh, Ukraine's authorities are, as we here in Ukraine say, uh, between two bonfires, between two, you know, epicenters of uh, uh, deadly uh, threats. Because on the one hand, there is uh, there are attempts uh, by there may be attempts by the West, as you say, to uh, push the Minsk agreements down Ukraine's throat uh, on the Russian terms. Uh, and if uh, there comes a time when Ukraine's authorities are ready to do that, that would be political suicide, basically, for you know any government. It does not even depend on specific names, on the president Zelensky's name or somebody else's. It's uh, indeed about you know anybody who would adopt that um, uh, that decision, and that's to say the least, because it can also um, spill over into a new Maidan or something, and that, of course, would be only something that Russia would want. Destabilization of Ukraine and as an opportunity to grasp it once again and more deeply. So, yes, that is, uh, that is you know, a very difficult situation for Ukraine's authorities to be in right now, and uh, I think it my personal uh, opinion is that it would pay off for Ukrainian authorities not to uh, give in to the pressure of the West should it choose to uh, align with Russia's demands. Indeed. Uh, another very important issue raised during Macron's visit was the so-called concept of Finlandization, which was leaked by some journalists as if Macron told uh, told them, I think, in a plane. And then Macron openly denied this idea of Finlandization during a press conference mm-hmm. with Zelensky. So the question is, what do you really understand by Finlandization or Austriaization or whatever? So meaning that Ukraine can be neutral. Uh, not a member of NATO. We understand that, I mean, when Russians are are afraid of Ukraine becoming a NATO member state, well, it's it's not happening now. It's not will happen tomorrow in one year or whatever. And we don't really, we are not really sure that it will happen, right? But the question is that Ukraine in a, is in a security vacuum and you cannot solve it through Ukraine's neutrality because we did it already. Uh, Yanukovych pro, uh, proclaimed Ukraine neutral non-aligned country. He just effaced the so-called Euro-Atlantic integration integration into NATO from countries' priorities, of course, under the influence of Russians, under the pressure of Russians. What happened? 
Russia annexed Crimea and uh, annexed part of occupied part of Ukrainian territory. So it, neutrality doesn't help us against Russian aggression. What can help us against Russian aggression? Uh, if well, I I really feel that there is a lack of of thinking about that. If you say that Ukraine is not becoming a NATO member in the coming future, what else do you suggest? What else can we discuss? Can we think about a, a big treaty like that of Austria in 1955? Yeah, I think 1955. Yes, yes. That engaged all the countries surrounding Austria, all big powers, guaranteeing Austria's security. Uh, they can think in this way, but I don't think I, I don't see any discussion of that. Right? Is Russia ready for that? Can we trust Russia in doing that? Well, first of all, it is funny that somebody would be talking about Finlandization of Ukraine in these circumstances, because uh, against the backdrop of what's going on at the border, uh, Finland has been rumored to. Uh, some people in Finland have been rumored to rethink maybe we're not going to be uh, that. Uh, out of any block, uh, you know, anyway, maybe we should consider joining, uh, like, NATO or something. Um, but other than that, uh, yes, I see that maybe um, the line uh, President Macron is uh, tri- trying to drive is maybe it can lead us to something that you were saying about, about uh, you know, this uh, big treaty. Uh, at least uh, in this case, we need to make sure that things work. Because, first of all, uh, we have been known to be... Uh, not paying enough attention ourselves when we signed the Budapest Memorandum. Why didn't we think back then that it would no uh, that it would it would have no legal uh, you know force uh, years later? And also we need to um, you know when there is a law domestically, there is a, a rule that is being written down, and there is also uh, the the punishment part when it says in the law what you're going to, how you're going to be punished when you do not follow this this rule uh, of the law. There is, uh, this is the same logic that needs to be applied and very clearly in in such a treaty should it arrive. Uh, Like, okay, there are these countries that give security guarantees to Ukraine, but should Russia breach the treaty? Yeah, we, what we need we need we need to you know uh, to write very clearly what we expect primarily from the West to make sure that the West would not be would not invent or have at their hands another Nord Stream two that would hamper them from being very effective in sanctioning Russia. We need to make to make sure that no matter what the counter response will come, and that's exactly and that's that that that's that's a very difficult counterbalance because you can say well if. If a, a this treaty, you know, obliges these countries to defend Ukraine in case of aggression, well, Russians will always find a pretext to defend yes. Ukraine. You know, defend in the in the quotation marks. So very difficult. But um, interestingly enough, uh, Russian aggression only helps Ukrainian to vote for NATO membership to support NATO membership. If in uh, and you, Maxim, wrote a, a very good article for Ukraine World website, and uh, let me announce that we will publish it uh, maybe tomorrow in the coming days, so you can find it on our website on the evolution of uh, pro-NATO and pro-EU me- uh, membership sentiments. Just two figures. First, uh, if in 2012 I think only 14 percent of Ukrainians were supporting yes. NATO membership, now it's 54. 
so much bigger figure, like huge increase. Mm-hmm. And uh, the second figure is that if you look at young people, there is a consensus across Ukraine, and there is a majority even in the eastern and southern regions which are traditionally more skeptical about NATO. That's true. So. And to put things into perspective, uh, when it comes, for instance, to the European integration, which back at the time was uh, the uh, pretext, not pretext, the reason of the revolution of dignity, uh, the support of the European integration has uh, roughly in the same time uh, risen by a fourth from 49, I think, to 62. And the figures that you cited about NATO, they mean the fourfold increase. So you can see how how Ukrainians care much more about their security and are ready, to, you know, to integrate to NATO and to in order to be safe than they do about the uh, EU, which was the reason of the revolution back in the day. So that's how important it is. So the more Russians are uh, uh, behaving aggressively, the more it consolidates Ukrainians and the more it increases the support for the Western vector. In this sense, Russian soft power just just a total disaster in Ukraine. So it, it cannot really suggest any attractive attractive things. But how you can suggest any attraction to to Ukrainians if you just grab parts of Ukrainian territories and That's put true. put your your army on the on the border. Maybe the last issue, the domestic issue <coughs> the Poroshenko issue. So we discussed this with you uh previously when we discussed the key trends of the two thousand twenty one and uh, we were reflecting on the fact that uh, Zelensky is trying to persecute Poroshenko, but we were kind of a skeptical if this will bring any results. So re- the result is now that the court didn't didn't put Poroshenko in jail. Poroshenko is, is a free person and uh, shows up everywhere, and his rating is increasing. So basically, Zelensky has shown that his control of the law enforcement services is not absolute, is not total, and uh, that's another sign that Ukraine is not an authoritarian country, that uh, its presidents are, do not really have a coercion vertical. They cannot say, contrary to Yanukovych times, Zelensky cannot just put his opponent in, in jail. And uh, yeah, right now Poroshenko's rating is already bigger than Zelensky's one, and uh, or at least at the same level, and the party of Poroshenko European Solidarity is ahead of servant of the people. That's the result. Zelensky, indeed. What do you think? Well, uh, first of all, it should be said that uh, indeed maybe maybe Poroshenko even uh, anticipated and maybe he even wanted to be put in jail after his arrival here in Ukraine following his uh, a little tourne uh, around Europe. Um, but that did not happen because, you see, it would mean that he could uh, portray himself as a political victim. And uh, that way, he, if he would be would have been uh, incarcerated, maybe he would have seen his uh, ratings to rise even higher. But uh, yes, uh, anyway, uh, he, he he now gains popularity uh, at a you know at a slow but but stable pace, and uh, that is something that of course worries Zelensky. At the same time, uh, there are still uh, like two years almost two years to go to, uh, you know, to the next uh, election. And uh, Zelensky will have much more problems there than only with the ri- when it comes to rival- rivaling Poroshenko. Uh, for instance, he uh, has the problem with the 
succession of the parliamentary and then presidential election, and in the light of what you said about the ratings of parties, uh, the Poroshenko's and Zelensky's parties, that is very important for him, and he really should be thinking about it uh, right now. So yes, it's an entire complex of problems, and uh, Poroshenko is, you know, something is an image of those problems, and yeah, so we'll have to see. We will uh, we will wrap wrap up on this. Maybe a ballot points to some other important things. We we were mentioning the visit of Macron, but there was also a, me, a visit of Boris Johnson, uh, yes. UK's Prime Minister, and uh, on the against the background of huge scandal of Boris Johnson at home, uh, but it is perceived in Ukraine rather positively, not a scandal, <laughs> but the fact uh, that he arrived to Kiev and United Kingdom and United States are really supplying Ukraine with defensive arms, which Ukrainians very much appreciate. Germany is still reluctant to provide arms to Ukraine. We will see next week the visit of Germany con- Chancellor Uh, Mr. Scholz, and uh, it is important that Macron was Macron's personal bilateral visit was the first in 24 years, so uh, of a French president to to Ukraine. There was a visit of Mr. Hollande together with Merkel in 2015, I think, but in terms of bilateral visits. Well, Ukraine, again, is becoming a center of diplomacy, and it is important. It is, again, on the radars of the of foreign media. Maybe it's also something that Putin underestimates, right? Mm-hmm. And um, what else? So the image of Germany in Ukraine is not very positive right now because of the Nord Stream and because of this uh, reluctance. reluctance to provide defensive arms to Ukraine. Maybe this will change, but we'll see. And there is... This cautious, cautious, uh, cautious look at maybe Scholz will be kind of more even open to the Russians compared to Angela Merkel. We don't know that. Another thing in the uh, domestic policy is that Zelensky issued a decree of transition to a professional army. There were several attempts to do that. The Ukraine still has a mixture. Uh, some parts of professional army, especially on the front line, but some parts are conscripts who are not really going to the front line, but still a kind of a reserve. But the question is whether Ukraine has sufficient funds for that. Mm-hmm. So we are following this and uh, follow our podcast. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by UkraineWorld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of U- UkraineWorld.org, and I was joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World, Maxim Panchenko. This podcast is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. Don't subscribe. Don't forget. <laughs> don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, uh, and follow Ukraine World on Facebook and Twitter. We are very active right now on Twitter. Uh, follow us at, at, at Twitter right now and website ukraineworld.org. And uh, um, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon patreon.com slash ukraine world the level of support is decided by you but we will very much appreciate uh, we are a small team based in kiev so stay with us